Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm former double agent and Newsweek editor-at-large, Naveed Jamali. And you're listening to Declassified, brought to you by Newsweek. Declassified is an exploration of what it means to be secure and of the people all over the world who are quietly working to keep us safe. In my career in the intelligence community, I served as a double agent and as an intelligence officer. My goal is to help explain the things that you can see, the proverbial iceberg above the waterline, and let you know what is below it. My first guest is Martina Navratilova. And it's match point for Stova and Navratilova. That does it. When Martina Navratilova was 18 years old, she defected from communist Czechoslovakia to the United States as an up-and-coming tennis player. Her decision, as you'll hear, to defect was a logical one. However, even though Martina left that communist Iron Curtain, it would frankly be another two decades before her home country abandoned communism and split into two nations. And as a talented young woman, it would have been all too easy for Martina to be caught in the crosshairs of history. Martina's story has context and relevance to what is happening in Europe today, especially as Eastern Europe faces yet another period of massive geopolitical change. Martina now looks at this as an American citizen. Perhaps it's hard for many Americans, especially those who were born here in the United States, to imagine what Eastern Europeans are experiencing now. But for someone like Martina, who spent most of her young life behind that Iron Curtain, it's unfortunately easy. I was lucky enough because I had a really fantastic childhood. The only thing I would change is the system under which I lived. Although, again, I had a great childhood growing up in a small town outside Prague, 5,000 people. My my parents would tell me stories from the war. My grandmother would tell me stories from the war. So I grew up, what, 11 years after the end of World War II. And so it was still pretty vivid in everybody's memory. And maybe that's why I always appreciated what we had, even though it wasn't much thanks to the communist system. And then... Both my parents lost their jobs, uh, or rather kicked out of school when they were in university because of their political views. And my dad ended up doing like hard labor for a couple of years. My mom was just, you know, thrown out. So they suffered from the communist regime from the get-go. You know, for me, it was uh, just how things always were. I didn't know any different. So you just kind of deal with it and you get on with it. Um, and then at you know 12 years old, I was playing a tournament in uh, Czech Republic. Actually, I was 11 at the time, not quite yet 12, playing a tournament in Pilsen, a uh, junior tournament. On, and my dad took me there on a, on a motorcycle. And in the morning, he called the house and said, don't go outside. I said, why not? Because there are tanks outside. 
Russian tanks are outside. So, of course, we went outside, yelled and screamed and, you know, threw rocks and stuff, but uh, didn't get in trouble. And my dad took me home on a motorcycle. So, but then the roads were, were uh, destroyed by tanks. So, Soviet Union came into Czechoslovakia to stop the Velvet Revolution under Alexander Dubček, who was our uh, premier. And 600,000 soldiers came to supposedly put down 25,000 anti-communists, right? So you do the math. The only reason it wasn't a war like it is in Ukraine is because the Czech government gave army the order to stand down. And people, very few people had any guns. Uh, so there was no chance for a, a military or, a, or even a civil war uh, going on against the, against the Soviets. And so our country overnight, had whatever hopes we had to become a democracy were squashed. And uh, since after that, we were really careful about what we said, what we did, because we didn't want anybody um, you know, getting, we, we didn't want to get in trouble from, from the Communist Party, etc. Listening to this, I mean, obviously the parallels between Ukraine and, and Czechoslovakia are, are there. I mean, but there are, of course, differences. You were 12 at this time. I mean, you must have had a sense, like you said, it was, uh, you know, night and day, it was a switch. Did you have a, I mean, how in a in a practical term, besides the fact that you saw tanks and occupiers, but was there something on a day to day basis that shifted under the Russian rule? Was there something that you became aware of that changed? I mean, is there something fundamental that you could point to? What changed was the hope for the future. Uh, the everyday life didn't change that much because it was pretty bad before. I mean, you always had to wait in line for groceries and. Uh, you know, we finally got a refrigerator when I was about, I don't know, 10 years old. And, wow. and the TV, same thing. We, we took it on a wheelbarrow from the electronic store to back to, uh, back to our home down the village, you know, in a wheelbarrow. So we had everything that we needed. Nothing really changed that way. But fundamentally, what changed was hope of people to, uh, to, to become a democracy, to have, to have freedom of, of speech, to be able to travel uh, abroad without, uh, you know, being put in prison, etc. It didn't get that much worse. It didn't, it wasn't like a massive change of how everyday life was, but it was a massive change in fundamental freedom and, and, and hope for the future. That hope for the future and, you know, these ideas of democracy, I imagine, again, at 12, democracy and systems of government and, 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 and the like, capitalism and communism, probably not something that most 12-year-olds are, are readily available or, or understanding, I should say. As you grew up, when did you sort, sort of become aware of this idea that, you know, you were behind the, this, this iron curtain and this idea of limited freedoms and, and the idea of something like democracy? You were born into it, so it was a, it was just a way of life. You, you became aware of the fact that there's only one party and there's only one person to vote for and one party to vote for. That was pretty clear, but like seven or eight. Um, <laughs> so it wasn't a aha moment when I was like 14. I'm like, oh, this is how it works. No, you just grew up with it and you knew there was no possibility of, of change. So when it actually did happen in 89, it was such a shock to most people because it, it happened rather quickly when it did happen. And peacefully, most of all. That wasn't a revolution. <laughs> that wasn't a war to resolve it. So, uh, but, but we grew up with it. Um, and also, I was very aware of what the world was like. I mean, I read the newspaper every day. Even though, of course, I knew there was propaganda, etc. But you still absorbed the culture and, and, and some reality of what life was like um, outside of the Iron Curtain. And through all this, you know, your tennis is obviously a big thing for you. Was there any shift between 
the Russians coming and before that in terms of what tennis meant to you, what, what you could do, what it, you know, what, what the freedom it allowed you? Tennis changed for me, not because the Russians came in as much as uh, just the possibility of tennis getting me out of the country was really crystallized. Because if you were a top athlete, you would automatically get the visa to travel and compete uh, outside of the country. So that was the best way out. In fact, uh, even our, our little tennis club where I grew up had a little exchange with Germany. And when I was 13 and 14, we, we traveled to West Germany to play in their club. And then, and then that club would come to our little country club uh, in exchange. So I had been exposed to the Western culture very early on and saw what, what it was like uh, I remember being mesmerized by American cars because we were near Frankfurt and there were a lot of American bases. So there were some Cadillacs and uh, Chevy Impalas driving around. And <laughs> it's like, uh, never seen anything like it, you know, uh, compared to the cars that were for sale in Czech Republic. So, but the, so I was American like, cars, mate, what, 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 uh, what, what drew you to American society? Is that a. Yeah, this is in the 60s, right? So <laughs> this is like, the, yeah, about 68, 69. Uh, 6970. So big ass, you know, Cadillac, Eldorado, and and uh, and and Ford, whatever, um, Fairlane, and you know, you could see these big, big cars driving around. It was like, wow. Uh, so I, I, I was exposed to the Western culture early on, and so we knew what was out there and what the possibilities were. And playing tennis, then I knew would if I was good enough, it would allow me to to get outside of the country. I remember being in high school at like 14 years old, taking English lessons, and there was a picture of uh, lesson five <laughs> it was, it was about America, and there was a picture of New York City, uh, of the Empire State Building, and I, I, I told my classmate, I was 14, I said, see this, I'm going to go there one day. <laughs> so, I knew. That's amazing. I mean, and you know, look, it, it, you're, you're 14 at the time, it's first time into seeing sort of I'm, put, I'm putting air quotes if you could see me, but freedom and you know <laughs> these big ass American cars, and it's a totally. Yeah. And and four years later, of course, you defected at 18. It's such a. I mean, this is such an yeah. incredible journey to have these ideas. I think, you know, I think of my kids now. <laughs> <laughs> these are not, you know, just they don't have a concept of this. Obviously, that 14, that must have been so impressionable to you, and the idea of playing tennis and the idea that there was another world that was completely different from the one you you were in. I mean, was that a big impetus to change to for you to defect? No, no, no. I didn't want to defect. Uh, I only defected because the federation wouldn't let me play where I wanted to play. Wow. You know, that's the thing. No, no, not very many people want to leave their country for good. Many want to leave, maybe travel the world or study abroad. But the most, most of them, probably ninety-nine percent of them, want to go back and make a difference in their in their home country. So uh, I defected by, by necessity, not by, by want. Uh, that was never my wish. Uh, if anything, I would have wanted to leave with my whole family, but we still didn't want to leave because, you know, you have ties to your home. Uh, but uh, for me, it was a, a, an existential uh, question in, in that I wasn't going to be, going to be in control of, of travel and setting my schedule as a professional tennis player. And um, you know, if, if the government didn't let me out of the country, I couldn't get out of the country. So that was a big chance to take and I wasn't willing to take it. So, uh, so again, people don't become refugees by choice. Uh, anyhow, I wasn't a refugee. I had it great, you know, as far as immigrants are concerned. I got my visa, uh, my, my uh, natural, which I call it, my green card immediately was granted uh, asylum overnight. I got my green card in a month uh, and citizenship six years later. I was already speaking English, obviously, making money, so I didn't have to worry about most things that immigrants have to worry about. 
so I had it easy, uh, relatively speaking, uh, to, to, uh, to most immigrants, uh, but I couldn't go back. That's the difference between refugees and immigrants. Immigrants have a choice to go back. Uh, I, was, I was an immigrant, but I couldn't go back. I did not go back for 11 years. Uh, if I had gone back, uh, the, the communists would have put me in prison. So, yeah, that's so. So, tennis just gave me a way out, and I knew it would be a way out, but it didn't make me try any harder. I always loved competing. And incidentally, one year after the Soviets came in 68 and 69, I played a junior tournament in Prague, and I beat a, I beat a Russian uh, junior. And when we shook hands, I said, see, tanks can't beat us. <laughs> Wow. Well, did they, they respond? Did she respond at all or did they say anything? Uh, I think she just shrugged. She didn't say anything. I think she was too upset about losing. She didn't care about the tank. <laughs> You see what's happening in Ukraine and you think about your own life. Yeah. I'm sure there was no love lost for the Russians when they came into Czechoslovakia. You know, what does it make you feel? What do you think? What do you see as the parallel there? How does there, there's got to be some connective tissue that, you know, it's war and it wasn't war in Czechoslovakia, but there is a lot of similarities there. Well, by pure luck, it wasn't war, but the end result was the same in that we did not have autonomy over our country. And that's what, uh, you know, Putin wants autonomy over Ukraine, except Ukrainians are able to fight, allowed to fight and want to fight. And you have civilians going back, you have tennis players going back to the country to fight for their, for the, for their freedom. And uh, and for their autonomy, so it's it's a much more dire situation for the Ukrainians in that it's literally do or die situation. For Czechs, it was like oh we had hope and now we don't. So it's much more severe in the Ukraine. But of course, I can completely empathize what what the people are going through and what they're feeling and how desperate it feels because you know Russia is so much bigger. Yeah, okay, how do you fight them? But they're doing a hell of a job fighting him off. But the only reason Putin and, and Russia is a superpower is because of nuclear power. If he didn't have nukes, nobody would be paying attention to him and he would have never gone into Ukraine, you know, because he, he can be a bully. Kind of like America can be a bully. That's why we went into Iraq. But, uh, you know, we knew we were safe going into there and we are loath to engage with Putin because of the nukes, because, oh. you know, they can stand up to us. So so there it is. And, and so bully will be a bully. But Ukraine is... Uh, is standing up to this massive bully and winning by just slowing them down, I guess. But maybe they'll they'll be forced to turn around. I'm hoping that's the case. You're right to call Putin a bully, and I'm sure the Soviets you would feel were the same way. When you think about how Europeans looked at Putin prior to his invasion of Ukraine, do you think there's a generational divide today in Europe in terms of what they think is possible with a nuclear armed Putin? You understand this because you live through it, but mm. there are people who haven't. Do you think there is that generational divide that people are waking up to the threat that Russia has always posed? Uh, I think so. I mean, I think you see it here in America regarding uh, right to choose for women. Now it's uh, it's being threatened, take away, and the younger generation is like, "What are you talking about?" Uh, so that's a, it's a similarity in that your your way of life, what you always knew, uh, will be will be shattered, and you have to go the other way. Uh, and so I think the younger generation is much more shocked by this, and they're like, "Hell no, we're not, we're not doing that." Right. Uh, and and also the old generation is too old to fight, maybe, 
and you know they're like they did not see this coming uh, at this at this uh, old age when uh, you know again when when Soviet Union broke up we thought okay great democracy is here to stay and you know better days are ahead and and here we are walking backwards and and the older people must be just devastated especially the ones that are still alive that lived through World War Two but the younger generation is like no 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 we're not this is not we're not going backwards no way you're absolutely right and you know uh, to that point I think. One of the things that we sort of overlook because there's so much going on with Ukraine, but I have to think about your time in tennis and how that really, the desire to play is really what you know propelled you forward in many ways. Currently, there is this uh, young woman, Brittany Griner, who has been detained mm. by the Russians. And I, I just want to ask you, because you know this is someone who, by all accounts, did literally, literally, absolutely nothing wrong. You know, she's been going traveling to Russia on the off season where she, when she plays the WNBA to play, you know, in a league there, she was known. I think I can't remember how many years she'd been there, but it's been several. And, you know, she was arrested prior to this and clearly in some sort of, you know, she's a person of color. She's part of the LGBTQ community. These are all things that I would say as an outsider that Putin resents a successful woman of color who has freedom and if Putin had invaded, it would have been this very, I think, public thing. And it's, it, it's just, a, it feels such like a, such a statement. What do you want people to know about that? And especially in regards to Putin and Russia. Well, I, I think, uh, yeah, all of those things that you you said, gay, black woman who's successful, uh, that's not helpful in how Russian government would be dealing with her. So. Uh, I think they, they, they saw a chance to make her into a pawn, and um, and that's what she is. I, I don't know what the negotiations are, etc. And then the, without the war, I think they'll be exchanging her for a spy or something. <laughs> you know, <laughs> with the war going on, it's kind of taken a back back seat to everything. And um, I think what I'm hearing now, May 19th, she will be there until then. But it doesn't mean that she will be let go at that point. That's right. Uh, so but she was targeted, right? I mean, like this, there, there's, there are probably, I can't even imagine how many Americans pass through the airport, you know, on a given day prior to the invasion. It, it feels like those attributes that are her were what targeted her, that this was. Uh, well, I, I think they targeted looking at her stuff, hoping they would find something. And they did. Now, I don't know if there's any question whether it was planted or not. I don't know enough about that. Uh, no, have we heard anything to that effect? But it, it, but it, whether it was planted or not, the fact is they were after her and they were hoping to find something, and and they did so allegedly. Uh, right. So it's just uh, uh, sometimes as a celebrity or as a gay woman, you're you let go because of that, uh, yeah. and sometimes you get uh, punished for that. And uh, for sure, she's being punished, and, and I think this is the case with black women. For the most part, they they don't get a pass. Uh, no, that's true. Unless it's another black person giving a pass, uh, I would certainly give it a pass. But um, they're used to it because it just happens all the time. And uh, fingers crossed. I mean, uh, uh, yeah, uh, timing. Her timing was horrible, unbeknownst to her. Completely, but. completely. Yeah, and and God willing, let's say that there is some peaceful resolution uh, to Ukraine and the, the hostilities end, and there can be some level of rebuilding. I mean, I, I, again, the human catastrophe that Ukraine has suffered is, I think, I don't think we fully grasp yet because it hasn't, you know, I don't even think they know how many people have been killed. I mean, I think it's, you know, it's an evolving conflict. It's hard to right. even tell. Not to go back to Brittany too much here, but when you talk about Russia's perception on the world stage, do you think, you know, whether it's an athlete 
in a year or two who might be tr- thinking of traveling to play in a league in Russia or 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 even Russian athletes, you know, look, <laughs> they took Putin off uh, as the honorary president of the judo, like I forget the judo international mm-hmm. organization. Sports is obviously one of the things that has always tied the international community. There's so many places that Russia is going to have issues being readmitted to that, you know, global stage, but also with athletics. What do you think this means going forward for the Russian athletic community or for athletes who are looking to travel to Russia? Is there going to be a chilling effect? Absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, I think if I was, I would, I would be nervous going there. You don't want to go to a country that is doing what, what's happening, even though it's not the people's fault what's happening in, in Ukraine. Uh, it's just the one guy, really one guy, you know, that doesn't really make a difference to people about the feeling about going there. Uh, there won't be any team competitions for a long time. So it, it affects some people, some athletes more than others. You represent the country or you just represent a team. No Russian teams can go anywhere. Russian athletes, like tennis players, can play, but they, they cannot play under the Russian flag. There were even calls for them not to be able to play uh, on the on the pro tour, and I'm totally against that. I think they need to be allowed to play because they're not, you know, they're not doing anything wrong themselves, and they're not really representing uh, the country. They're just playing tennis. Uh, in fact, when I was playing, we didn't have the country next to our name. It was just another player. <laughs> so Wow, right. Uh, it didn't really matter that much. It's become much more na- nationalistic in that regard. But the, you know, the players should be allowed to play. Uh, but it, definitely a chilling effect, and there won't be any team competitions for years to come. I don't know when they're going to be allowed into the Olympics. And and the the, the the communist countries, Russia and and China particularly, make make sports into a political um, expression, right? Of how fit they are, how how amazing they are, what physical specimens they are, etc. Uh, and and use it as propaganda and also to kind of normalize their 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 country. Qatar did the same thing with with the with the World right. Cup. Should never be there. <laughs> China Absolutely. should have never probably had the Olympics. Uh, I actually did a speech about this like 15 years ago at the UN, saying that we should not be rewarding countries that have horrible human rights record to hold these major sporting events. But that. Clear, nothing changed. <laughs> so, uh, so sports and politics have always uh, been intertwined, and now the the athletes from Belarus and particularly Russia are going to struggle, are going to suffer and pay the big price for this. Because if they speak out against it, they can't go back to Russia. <laughs> and if Absolutely. they don't speak out, uh, then then they're like ostracized. So they're really stuck between a rock and a hard place, and it's difficult for them. But of course, the ones that suffer the most are the Ukrainian athletes who. Many of them go, going back to the country. We have three former tennis players. Sergei Stakovsky, he played at the Aussie Open. He's been on, I think, MSNBC a few times. He's gone back to Ukraine to fight. Uh, so did uh, uh, Dolgopolov, uh, Alex Dolgopolov, and uh, Andrei Medvedev, who played back in the uh, 80s and 90s. I, I didn't even know he was Ukrainian, but he's Ukrainian. I thought he was, he was so, you know, played for the Soviet Union. He's gone back to uh, Ukraine to fight. And then the female athletes, well, maybe some will go back to fight too. I don't know. I don't know how I could play tennis. Usually the tennis court is an escape, kind of an escape hatch for you, but this is too much. You know, this is, you can't escape this. To kind of bring this to a close, you know, you, you really had this interesting experience that is, I'm sure a lot of people, it's, it's new to even hear about this. And when you look at the future of Europe, when you look at the future of Russia, you know, you're right. It's It's just Putin. It's just him alone. I mean, this is all his doing. I don't think... Anyone would argue the Russian people are really behind this by any stretch of the imagination. Do you think that there could be this moment, just as you had when you when you were 14, you went to East Berlin, you saw 
you know, what the freedoms, what, <laughs> what capitalism could net you. Do you think there's going to be this moment, perhaps, with the Russian people that they might wake up to a similar sort of aha moment that will make them want to perhaps throw off the yoke of Putin's uh, authoritarianism? It has to come from the people within that country. It's really, you can't go into a country and change those people's minds. They need to come to that resolution and that um, that aha moment themselves. So I it, I think it's, it's ho- I'm hopeful. It's probably a 50-50 proposition at this moment because, because the, the situation in Ukraine is pretty much 50-50 proposition. Martina, in the in the few seconds we have left, personally, I feel we're in this sort of generational shift where there's a younger generation that is far more in tune and far more knowledgeable than I was at their age. And if you could speak to that generation and you could talk a little bit about what is at risk, what is being threatened as someone who, you know, again, grew up for a big part of her childhood on the Iron Curtain, what is threatened? Can things can rights change and be taken away overnight? You know, yes, they can, and they have been, and uh, and and we need to remember that, and we need to remember it when we complain about having to wear a mask. You know, that's that's uh, that's not a problem when you lose the freedom to move around the country as you wish or leave the country uh, when you lose the freedom to vote or the freedom to vote for two different people of different view- views. That's when the shit hits the fan, not when you have to wear a mask in, 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 in a public place to protect people around you. That's not the loss of freedom. That's just being courteous and, and, uh, and patriotic, actually, because you're protecting those around you. True f- freedom loss would mean that, that uh, all your rights are taken away. Look at what's happening in Ukraine, and it just takes one, one person to flip it. It takes a lot more people to flip it the, the, the right way. But uh, people need to be aware of that and need to speak out and organize and help out wherever they can and maybe run for office, you know, (laughs) just get involved any which way you can. Well, Martina, wise words as always. I really appreciate you taking time and talking with us today. Uh, Thank you again for stopping by. All right. Thanks, David. Thank you. Thanks once again to Martina for joining us. Be sure to head over to Newsweek.com for more foreign policy coverage from me and the rest of our team. You can always check out our growing podcast lineup. If you haven't done so, consider subscribing to our digital and print editions of Newsweek. If you like this episode of Declassified, we'd love if you could subscribe and leave us a five-star review. As a new show, it really helps us grow and make sure that we can bring the content that you want to hear. As always, I'm Naveed Jamali for Newsweek. You can find cars like these on AutoTrader. New cars, used cars, electric cars, maybe even flying cars. Okay, no flying cars, but as soon as they get invented, they'll be on AutoTrader. Just you wait. AutoTrader.